From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. Welcome in. It's Friday. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Journalists in Washington, Charlotte, and right here in our studio are set to review the North Carolina Week in News. Denarius, hit that music. Former federal prosecutor Brad Knott hasn't run for office before, and few people in political circles had heard of him. This is a Knott solid. This is a Knott strong. And this is Brad Knott, the solid, strong conservative for Congress. He's one of at least 11 Republicans running in the 13th Congressional District, where Democrat Wiley Nickel isn't seeking re-election. We're just missing all of those contributions. Our state is very diverse, not just in race, gender, ethnicity, and expertise. Attorney General Josh Stein joined state attorneys general from six other states to sue the NCAA over its transfer rule that requires players to sit out a year after a second transfer. Developers want to bring the convenience store that'll have 120 gas pumps, 60 parking spaces, and will employ 200 people. Some of the sounds from the week in North Carolina news and politics story was that we'll chat about here across the next hour. 2024 candidate filing closes in just a couple of hours. Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein among the AGs successfully suing to halt the NCAA's transfer rule for now. And Bucky's. Am I saying that right? Our panelists will help me in a bit. Uh, the mega convenience store wants to build in Mebane. As it turns out, some of the fine folks of Mebane don't want a Bucky's. Go figure. All right. We're here with uh, a panel of journalists to uh, gather some knowledge, context, and work us through stories of the week. Will Doran, WRAL state government reporter, is here in studio. Ruben Jones, Spectrum News Washington reporter covering North Carolina on the line from the district. And Michelle Crouch independent healthcare journalist for the Charlotte Ledger and NC Health News. Morning, y'all. Thanks for having us. Morning. Morning. Candidate filing is just about over. Across the state, thousands of candidates have filed to run for Congress, the General Assembly, and municipal posts. Biggest surprise from the two-week filing period. Kick us off, please, Will. Ooh, biggest surprise. Yeah, didn't think that one was coming, did you? <laughs> That's a surprise question. Um... I think the biggest surprise has got to be uh, Patrick McHenry stepping down. I mean, you know, he was the interim Speaker of the House, um, you know, North Carolina Republican who's been in Congress close to 20 years and uh, decided that he's had enough of Congress and is uh, not going to seek reelection after, you know, attaining some of the, the highest you know levels of power you can have in D.C. Decided this is it for me. Uh, I'm done. And, you know, he's he's still young for a politician. He's just in his late 40s. And not a state senator or a lowly city council member, I say that with a smile on my face. But this is, as you note, somebody who was just at the upper reaches of the federal government weeks ago. And he's saying before the age of 50, nah, I'm good. Like, I don't need to I don't need to be in this mess any longer. It's really a remarkable uh, departure and not one we were expecting. Ruben, I don't think it was one you were expecting because uh, uh, no one was expecting it. Uh, tell us what the, the biggest surprise thus far uh, throughout the candidate filing period has been for you, Ruben. It, it's also Patrick McHenry. Okay. Uh, there are some surprises in terms of just the shakeups in terms of the Republican candidates. Who is jumping into what district? It's starting to become sort of a circus of who's who. Um, I'll elaborate on McHenry and say that, uh, yes, it is, it is a surprise in the sense of uh, a lawmaker rising to the pretty much as high as you can be 
It's not something we typically think of, oh, I want to leave. Uh, you know, politicians like to hold on to power. McHenry is a little different. He never wanted to be Speaker of the House. He never really likes being in the, the attention and the limelight. So uh, that's a bit of a surprise. But then when you dive a little deeper, he's chair of the House Financial Services Committee, which is very powerful. He likes doing that type of work. He likes tackling cryptocurrency and all this stuff. But his time is up. His, uh, he's come to a point where he can't be chair anymore. So for his perspective, he's been there a long time. He can't chair his committee anymore. It's time to move on, do something else. And I'll tell you, he's going to not have any problems getting a job in the private sector if that's the route he goes. You say if that's the route he goes. Any speculation, any scuttlebutt in Washington, any expectation from you, Ruben, about is Patrick McHenry thinking about a Senate run in 2026? Does he want to uh, land in an administration somewhere? Do, do you have a thought about what he's doing a year from now? Uh, I have not heard rumblings about that. I would be surprised. He does not seem like he wants to stay in politics. I think it'll be pretty comfortable in the private sector. But as Will points out, uh, or Jeff, you pointed out, he is quite young. So he may be in the private sector five, six years and then come back into politics. Ruben Jones on the line from Washington. Will Doran here in studio. Michelle Crouch on the line uh, from Charlotte as well. Candidate filing, we're going to stick with Congress filings, congressional filings. Synthesize that for a moment. Just a a little bit uh, of a reminder here for our listeners. North Carolina has 14 U.S. House seats now. They gained that 14th uh, out of the 2020 census and reapportionment a couple of years ago. And there are five, by my count, but Will, Ruben, Michelle, somebody help me out if I'm mistaken here, five Congress members who are not running for re-election. The aforementioned McHenry, another Republican in the 8th District named Dan Bishop. So Dan, uh, former state senator, former state House member, uh, Congressman Bishop, excuse me, uh, is going to run uh, for attorney general. He's seeking the Republican nomination. Those are the two Republicans who will not seek another uh, term in Congress. Then there are three Democrats, Kathy Manning in the sixth. I want to come back to the sixth because I think it's really interesting. Wiley Nickel in the 13th and Jeff Jackson in the 14th. Will, a poo-poo platter for you. Take one of those three, Nickel, Jackson or Manning. Tell us why they're not running. Well, let's uh, let's start here in the triangle. Okay. Um, we got Wiley Nickel. He's a Democrat from Cary. You know, his district right now is kind of the southern half of Wake County. Some of Raleigh, you know, parts of Cary, Apex, Holly Springs, Garner, all those suburbs. And then it kind of goes south into Johnston County, a little bit of Harnett County, down to Goldsboro. Um, and he won a really competitive district in 2022. You know, a lot of people thought that was actually going to go Republican, but yep. he pulled out this win in the end. And of you know has you know kind of tried to govern as a moderate since he does have this really competitive district um however that district got redrawn uh as did several others in uh in october when the legislature came in and did the new redistricting process it is now a really heavily republican district you know i think it's you know plus 18 in favor of trump or something like that and so he's he said like there's there's no point in me trying to run for this and uh he's he's stepping out of that and there is a massive massive gop primary to replace him there's a dozen candidates at least and you know as you said filing's not over we still have a few more hours for you know even more people to jump into that race bad analogy time here uh districts in north carolina are like a coloring book uh, that a four-year-old has gotten his or her hands on the lines continue to manifest and move and that's part of the reason why Wiley Nickel is not running for another term. We've got to end partisan gerrymandering. And it doesn't matter who's doing it, if it's Democrats or Republicans, it's wrong and it's destroying our democracy. 
And I've said it before, and I will say it again, voters should choose their politicians. Politicians should not be choosing their voters. That is Wiley Nickel this week. He's a former state lawmaker who ran successfully for Congress two years ago, will not run for another term because he's ostensibly been drawn out of his district and doesn't have a pathway uh, to victory. Ruben, this is just part of the recipe in North Carolina politics right now, the, uh, the, the gerrymandering. We'll talk more about gerrymandering in a moment, but tell us first with Wiley Nickel, what's he doing next? Because he already has a plan. If uh, 2024 didn't seem uh, far away enough, uh, 2026 is now coming into light because he is very interested in running for Senate. 2026, three three years away. Uh, We are halfway through the term of Tom Tillis, who won uh, another term back in 2020. Like, I can't I'm smiling like this is a little bit silly to me. It's like go away and go to the private sector like McHenry for a little while and come back. But is or, or Ruben, please push back on me. Is that just what politics is now? Yeah, three years out. Why not? Like, hey, maybe someone's going to declare for 2032 the presidential race next week. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. Look, I, I think it's a way to keep his name in the conversation. I spoke with Wiley Nickel. I spoke with Kathy Manning both this week. There's a big difference between these two and some of the other big retirements we're seeing in Congress currently. They don't want to leave. They very well want to still be there. Wiley Nichols in his first year. Kathy Manning is in her second term. They would very likely, uh, very much like to stay in Congress, but they don't have a really feasible route of winning. So uh, for Wiley Nickel, will it be the Senate run? Potentially, he very well is interested in that. Uh, But let's be clear, he is by no means necessarily the Democratic favorite in the sense of we don't know who all is going to be running. There are some big names. I'm hesitant to even throw names out there because we're still so far out there. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on uh, Due South. A quick civics reminder, and then I want to talk briefly about this uh, Bishop and Jackson race. The quick civics reminder is when you run for the state House or or the state Senate to be in the General Assembly, you must live in your district. But if you run for Congress, you don't have to live in that district. Wiley Nickel doesn't live in what is currently the 13th district. Okay, so I mentioned Dan Bishop. He's an 8th district congressman. He's running for the AG's nomination on the Republican side. There's Jeff Jackson from down in Charlotte. He's going to run for the nomination on the Democratic side. Coming up on a break in about a minute, but Will, this is going to be a, a feast of an attorney general's race, presuming these two get through the primary. What are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, it's just going to be, you know, no holds barred uh, campaigning for this race. Millions and millions of dollars spent, really probably nasty ads from both sides. You know, they're already sniping at each other. These are two people, uh, no love lost between them. Uh, They served together in the state legislature and again in Congress, and they are just complete opposite ends of the spectrum politically and personality-wise. Bishop and Jackson are both very good orators, very opinionated, strong fundraisers. And that attorney general's race is going to be interesting. Also, uh, could be very interesting for the next two, three, four years, depending upon whom the governor is. And if that attorney general is in contrast with the next governor of North Carolina. Will Dorn from WRAL is here on our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. So, too, is Ruben Jones from Spectrum News and Michelle Crouch, who had a very interesting story in North Carolina health news this week. We will talk about that on the other side as we uh, barrel towards some other topics this hour, including a mega convenience store, which may or may not uh, be setting up shop in Mebane, North Carolina. This is the Friday News Roundup on Due South, right here on listener-supported WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on listener-supported WUNC. I'm Jeff here in studio with Will. Ruben is on the line from D.C. and Michelle is joining us from Charlotte. A neat note of North Carolina history for you on this Friday. 
82 years ago tomorrow, Duke University invited Oregon State to come play a football game in Durham. This invitation was extended just days after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and the Rose Bowl, usually played in Pasadena, California, was canceled because of concerns that the event would serve as a target. So, the 1942 Rose Bowl was held at Wallace Wade Stadium in Durham, North Carolina. The Duke Blue Devils lost to the Oregon State Beavers 2016, An estimated 56,000 people watched that 28th edition of the Rose Bowl in person, right here down the road in Durham, North Carolina. If you've ever got a historical nugget, a news question, or some other thought for us to consider for the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here at Due South, please email us, dosouth at wunc.org. Back to candidate filing in a bit, but i got to break up all these political dreams. Let's deviate for a few minutes. want to welcome in Michelle Crouch, uh, who has been waiting patiently. Michelle, it is what I call sick season. We've got the flu. We've got the RSV. Anecdotally, I am seeing more masks uh, out and about at the grocery store, walking around, doing the Christmas shopping. Uh, are we seeing an uptick right now in flu and RSV cases? And if so, how, how much of an uptick? Uh, Yes, Jeff, if you've noticed everybody around you is sick these days, you are not imagining it. Hospitals across the state are reporting a surge of patients with respiratory illnesses. Um, Right now, it's mostly being driven by influenza and RSV. Talk to me briefly about the vaccination window for those who have not been inoculated against flu or RSV. I'm looking at that uh, little date in the bottom of my laptop. We've got 10 days until Christmas and the family time's right around the corner. Is there is there still time to get some additional protection or is time running out? Yes, it's, n- it's not too late to get your vaccines. Um, vaccine uptick, the, va- the number of people who have gotten the vaccines is lower than it has been in a very long time. Um, the CDC actually issued an alert this week about the low levels of people who've received the vaccine this year. The flu season, as you probably know, does extend all the way, sometimes as late as May. So it's not too late to get your flu vaccine or your other vaccines. Hospitalizations, is there a note, uh, is there, a note there on this or, or not? And Ruben, I'm coming. You look, you look like you've got something to say, Ruben, on the flu front. So sit tight just for a second, Ruben. But, but Michelle, in terms of um, in terms of hospitalizations, uh, is there data that's worth noting at this point? Well, our, our hospitalizations are increasing in North Carolina, but not to the rates that they were in 21-22. Um, and part of that is because some residual effect from the pandemic. People still have um, a, what they what scientists call immunity debt, which is basically that they, because we took so many precautions during COVID, our community immunity dropped a little bit, and that's making us more susceptible to these respiratory illnesses. Ruben? I was just going to mention, Jeff, I covered a hearing with Dr. Mandy Cohen, who everybody in North Carolina knows well. I was struck by this number. She said the CDC says only 16% of Americans have gotten the updated COVID shot, and it was as of weeks ago. Those are not numbers the CDC wants to see. What is the CDC doing, if anything, other than having... Uh, Dr. Cohen uh, testify in Congress or, or, or hold a press conference. What what can what are they doing to try to improve upon that taking, low number? So just to be clear, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's been taking different approaches. I, I was down with her in Atlanta when she first took over the job, and she basically says we need to restore trust in the CDC, get Americans to trust us again. And she's been more of out there taking different approaches with uh, social media and things like that to try and encourage people. 
But look, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there, and uh, it's a really difficult path for her to be able to increase those numbers from, again, 16 percent. And at the risk of maybe getting in a little bit of trouble, Michelle, hang on just one second. I'm going to come right back to you. There's hesitancy. There's also paranoia. There's also, you know, there are conspiracy theories. There's there's a lot more in the ecosystem and a lot more of it than there was a few years ago. And I think that has contributed to some degree. I can't. I'm, this is just me pontificating here. So I'll try to, to rein it in quickly. But that is a factor when we think about 16 percent. This isn't this isn't a, a science question. This is a question over rhetoric and uh, messaging, I, I think. But Michelle, go ahead. Well, I, I think a lot of people feel like, well, I already have the vaccine, I'm protected, and they don't really see a reason to get the new and updated vaccine. So I think that's part of the challenge for the CDC. Uh, and I do think um, it's interesting how Mandy Cohen is really embarking on quite a robust campaign <clears throat> to try to change the perception about the vaccine. Um, the New York Times had a had a story about her today about how she has been she's visited 22 different vaccination sites she's been very um she's been on social media she has her conversations with mandy she's talking about her kids and how she got them the vaccines she's she's really trying to get out there and get this message out Michelle Crouch is with us uh, on the line from her home in Charlotte. She is a freelance journalist, but uh, two of the publications who she uh, often uh, frequents uh, with her publications and her journalism are NC Health News as well as the Charlotte Ledger. Ruben Jones is with us. He is a reporter for Spectrum News, Spectrum News, Washington's reporter, uh, Spectrum News, Washington reporter covering North Carolina. I'm going to butcher that about three different ways this hour. You know that there's nothing but love for you, Ruben. Uh, and Will Doran, a state government reporter from WRL, is also uh, on our roundup today, North Carolina News Roundup. Michelle, you had a really interesting story this week, fascinating story on medical debt published by North Carolina Health News. I want you to walk us through it. And let's begin where the story begins in Winston-Salem with a wonderful effort of altruism. Tell us what happened there. Yes, so there is a small church in Winston-Salem called Trinity Moravian Church. And um, about a year ago, it embarked on a campaign to erase medical debt for their members of their local community. And what they did is they worked with a national charity that's gotten a lot of attention called RIP Medical Debt. And this charity buys medical debt from hospitals And then instead of going after it the way a debt collector would, they send letters to these people and forgive it. And hospitals sell medical debt for pennies on the dollar. And so these, um, so RIP is able to buy the debt very cheap Mm -hmm. and about a dollar of debt that they buy can pay off about a hundred dollars of medical debt. Wow. And so this tiny little church raised $15,000 and they were able to forgive the medical debts of more than 2000 people. So, um, it's a really great new model of, uh, forgiving medical debt, which is a huge problem, as you know. So you mentioned 2000 people had medical debt debt forgiven. Can you give us the aggregate? How much medical debt was um, a debt, RIP medical debt? I mean, I think in your story, it was like several million dollars, but it was a large amount of money. So RIP medical debt goes around the country. This isn't unique to North Carolina or the South. This is a national organization. Um, So in the wake of what happened in Winston-Salem, there's a physician in Charlotte who thinks, hmm, this could be good around uh, these parts in Mecklenburg County. Pick up the story for us there, please. Yes. So I I learned about RIP medical debt because I was contacted by a retired atrium physician who said, hey, this is a great organization. 
I'd like to launch a campaign to forgive medical debt for residents of Charlotte, my local community. Um, Statistics show that about one out of every five Charlotte residents has medical debt in collections. It's a big problem here. And so he reached out to his former employer, to Atrium. He also reached out to Navant, the other big healthcare provider here in Charlotte, and said, hey, let's have a, would you be willing to have a conversation with RIP Medical Debt and sell some of your debt to them? It would be a win-win for everybody. And? And, and they said, sorry, we already have very robust charity policies. We're all, we already have financial assistance, and we're not willing to have that conversation. I noticed you just said, we're not willing to have that conversation. And I also, Michelle, if I'm paying attention, sorry to be overly snarky, noticed that you just said one in five people in Mecklenburg County have medical debt. So it would seem to me as an outsider as though there might be a need for some greater charitable efforts here. Why are the, the healthcare systems not willing to have this conversation? Well, I can only share what they shared with me, which is that they feel like the working with RIP would conflict with their current financial assistance policies, that they already have plenty of help available for folks who can't pay their medical bills. Objectively speaking, it doesn't seem like there's enough help, but but are there other are there other variables to this that are worth uh, considering? Well, one point that Atrium brought up that I thought was interesting is that they, they expressed a concern that perhaps the, avail- the working with this program could discourage people from signing up for Medicaid or for another insurance plan. Hmm. Um, and maybe they're thinking as well, if I know that my debt will be forgiven down the line, I don't need to go through all these steps to get insurance. Interesting. Um, Michelle Crouch is with us on the line from her home in Charlotte. She had a story this week in North Carolina Health News about medical debt and the effort by one nonprofit and also a former physician in Charlotte uh, to uh, cultivate forgiveness uh, around some medical debt. There's a line in your story that I just I want to read and point out. And I don't it might just be a standalone line, but it struck me as really remarkable. And this this sentence was just a standalone graph and it says nationally Two-thirds of bankruptcies cite medical debt as a cause. I had no idea that it was that high. Uh, I don't know if that even needs any unpacking, but do you want to unpack that or, or kind of go next level at all? You know, I, what's one of the things that's especially interesting and one of the reasons why medical debt is on the rise is because it used to be that most of the people struggling with medical debt were people who didn't have insurance But the latest statistics show that the majority of people who have medical debt in collections do have insurance. And this is because the shift to high deductible plans means that people are having to take on more of the cost of their medical care. And even if you have insurance, that can push you over the edge, that can push you into bankruptcy. It can still be an amount of money that you're not able to pay. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I want to try to bridge this back toward politics. As I think about medical debt, I think about drug costs. I think about the issue of abortion. You're a healthcare reporter, uh, Michelle, and as we talk about some of these candidates for 2024, I'm interested uh, as you listen to the conversation and as you think about 2024, what are some of the biggest medical healthcare issues that you expect to be uh, talked about on the campaign trail and also potentially influence campaigns here in the months ahead? Well, here in North Carolina, I think the the rollout of Medicaid is is probably one of the biggest stories. I mean, we have 600,000 additional people that are eligible under Medicaid expansion, and there's a lot of moving pieces with that. So that'll be something that we'll be covering in 2024. 
Uh, in terms of the political landscape and campaigns, I mean, I think two of the biggest issues, of course, again, are abortion. I don't know if the legislature is going to take any additional action on that, but just to kind of see what happens uh, in the judicial system will be interesting. And then the other big issue here, I would say, is the mental health issues that we're facing. I mean, that we as a state have a serious lack of mental health resources. And even though we invested millions of dollars this year into mental health, the question is really how much of a difference can that make? News broke overnight, or at least I read the news this morning. I don't know when it broke, but I do want to drop in another healthcare related news a bit here. And that's Attorney General Josh Stein has filed another relatively high profile lawsuit, this one against HCA Healthcare. The suit alleges HCA has not held up the standards uh, of emergency and cancer care at Mission Hospital in Asheville, uh, HCA purchased Mission in Asheville in 2019. Michelle, you were just shaking your head uh, briefly. I want to make sure you're not shaking your head at anything I just read. You're shaking your head just at the kind of the messiness of this whole story. So um, this has been kind of an ongoing issue in the Asheville area. The physicians and the nurses have really been speaking out about some of the changes that have happened since the healthcare system was purchased by HCA. And that's what this, this lawsuit is coming in response to. Will, Ruben, as we think about healthcare and North Carolina elections, politics in 2024, what bubbles to the surface for, for either of y'all? Well, you know, Jeff, I heard you express, you know, some surprise a few minutes ago that, you know, one in five people in Mecklenburg County have medical debt. I remember looking this up a few years ago, and especially in eastern North Carolina, I mean, there's plenty of counties where it's 30, even 40 percent of the population are in collections for medical debt. So, wow. you know, especially in more rural areas of the state, it's really bad. And that's, you know, one thing that Medicaid expansion, which, you know, just became law earlier this month, was kind of meant to you know, it's obviously not going to help people who have medical debt right now, right. but it's, you know, hopefully aimed at, you know, helping people avoid going into debt for getting health care in the future. And so I think, you know, there there will be some some credit that, you know, Republican lawmakers get for, you know, finally coming around on Medicaid expansion after Democrats have been pushing it for a decade. It was, yeah. you know, one of the big bipartisan things that the legislature did this year. Um, and, you know, there, there could be some uh, some lingering good feelings um, for that, you know, especially in the more rural area areas of the state. I'm throwing you on the spot here. This is maybe an unfair question, considering you just said you looked up this data years ago. But do you can you give us any sense of are we talking about like uh, a couple hundred bucks in collections, 10 or 15 thousand dollars? Like what kind of money are we talking about? If you recall, I don't believe the data went into that level of specificity. Um, But yeah. Okay. Kaiser Health News, great resource for anyone who ever wants to uh, look up uh, healthcare data. <laughs> That's what I usually use. Kaiser Health News, North Carolina Health News, uh, wonderful sources. And we're, we're trying to uh, just kind of put a bow on some of the stories from uh, the week in North Carolina news and politics here on Due South. Reuben Jones, Will Doran and Michelle Crouch are here as uh, our panel. Uh, let me just note a couple of other stories in the, the ethos, and then we might move back to candidate filing unless anybody has anything they want to weigh in uh, on uh, any of these. 241 people who ate at Sushi 9 in Raleigh became ill after dining there this month. According to Wake County Public Health officials, daily visits from health consultants are now taking place. The restaurant voluntarily closed for a deep clean is again open. The specific source of the contamination is unknown. A person died at Burke Street Pub in Winston-Salem earlier this month. 
apparently due to consuming a cleaning agent that was not cleared out of a line, a line that was intended to serve draft beer. Several other people became ill from these dirty lines as well. And the Lumbee tribe's push for federal recognition has gotten significant attention in recent months and years, but it's not the only North Carolina tribe seeking recognition. The Haliwa-Saponi tribe of eastern North Carolina is also pushing for federal recognition. And I want to dip in here and just get a little bit of context from you, Ruben, because that's not a story I knew anything about, but it's a story you've reported on. So please tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I've done a lot of reporting on the Lumbee tribe over the years from from federal recognition to some of the uh, challenges that they've had in that area. Um, And and I was, I guess, a little embarrassed that I did not know that really much the Hollow Saponi tribe, which is in eastern North Carolina, uh, in Warren and Halifax counties. They've been pushing for federal recognition for decades. And basically what I found really interesting was that they've gone through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They did that decades ago. The Bureau basically asked for documentation to prove that they should get this federal recognition. Mm -hmm. The problem they've had is that a lot of the documents that they need have been lost, stolen, burned in fires from the Civil War, uh, issues that, of course, occurred uh, for many tribes on the East Coast. And so they're going through this route through Congress, G.K. Butterfield, the former congressman, and now Don Davis introducing bills to try and give them federal recognition in Congress. Uh, the, the problem is, and we saw it in the Lumbee tribe, it's just really hard to do that. Uh, and it's not advanced, at least to a vote on the Halawasaponi tribe in Congress yet. Next steps here? Like, are, are, are we anywhere near a vote? What, like, what is the natural progression from this point? I would say the Lumbee tribe is much further along in terms of potentially getting it. The Halawasaponi, it's stuck in committee right now, and it's not clear it would get a vote in the House. Right. It's a much smaller tribe, too, than, than the Lumbees. So, you know. You mentioned Halifax, and I think you said Warren counties, which is uh, just for geographical context, northeast of Raleigh, kind of up along I 95. How many members uh, are part of uh, this tribe? If you know. A little over 4,000. A little over 4,000. 4, okay. Uh, North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. We're going to step aside in just a moment. Uh, Before we do, Will, I'm going to put you under the gun again because that's just a a fun thing to do for me. You mentioned lieutenant governor's race. Um, Tell us how many candidates are in the lieutenant governor's race and why you think there are so many. Oh, gosh, there's at least a dozen. Um, I haven't done the final count, and who knows? There could be even more signing up today. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a really interesting position here in North Carolina because it has almost no real duties, no real power, but it's paid a pretty decent amount of money and you get this huge platform that you can use to really just travel the state and essentially campaign for governor. And so it's a really, you know, attractive Mm -hmm. position for ambitious politicians. Obviously, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is running for governor right now. You know, before him, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest ran for governor, uh, Bev Perdue was the lieutenant governor before she became governor. So it is kind of seen as the stepping stone to being governor, uh, you know, without, you know, some of the actual, you know, things that you have to do uh, <laughs> that might come with other other jobs in state government. And uh, it's, you know, with it being open, we've, we're going to have really competitive primaries uh, between both Democrats and Republicans. It's an office that Republicans have had pretty good success in in recent years. And I kind of wonder if that's because voters were choosing Roy Cooper to be governor. Yeah. And so they said, okay, well, this will kind of balance it out. I'm going to vote for this Democrat for governor, but I'll, I'll choose the Republican for lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor's race is crowded. We're going to mention uh, maybe a name or two 
uh, on the other side. North Carolina Friday News Roundup rolls on in a moment here on Due South from WUNC. This is the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Michelle Crouch, healthcare journalist for the Charlotte Ledger and North Carolina News, is here as part of our panel joining us from Charlotte, as well as Ruben Jones, Spectrum News Washington reporter covering North Carolina, and Will Doran, WRL state government reporter. Will uh, is here with me in studio. We'll get back to some more pressing matters in a moment. Maybe more pressing now. I don't know. A question for all of you Have you noticed how expensive? Christmas trees are this year. Yes. Any takers on this? I actually um, was shopping around a lot because the, the last couple of years, it's it's been getting more and more expensive. And, you know, you, you love to go and support, you know, the, the local Boy Scouts, local church, you know, whoever has the Christmas tree mm-hmm. stand set up on the side of the road. But they've just been really getting pricey. And this year I had to do something I thought I'd never do. And I, <gasps> I just went to Home Depot and got one. Because they were cheaper there. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, local Boy Scouts. It's a good thing there's six feet of table between us, Will. I, I mean, I asked if they were expensive, at... not if you changed course in your philosophy about Christmas. <laughs> Ruben, please. I'm staring at my artificial tree right now. To be, I don't want to take a stance on the controversial view because I'm a big supporter of, of real trees as well. You also, I, I want to underscore this, Ruben. I want to give you a little bit of an out. I, I think you're in, in, I mean, you're in a major city. You might be in an apartment. Like if you live on the third floor, like what do you, like do people haul up Christmas trees? Like if it's a, artificial, you can do it in a box and then you can set it up in your apartment or condo, right? Exactly. I think I would get some strange looks as I'm wheeling in a real tree and, you know, everything's dropping. <laughs> I feel like that should have been, maybe that was in like the outtakes of Elf. Um, just like dragging a, a nine foot Christmas tree into like a, a nice apartment on the Upper East Side. Uh, Michelle, uh, any, any take on Christmas trees here? Well, I have read that prices are up about 10% nationwide. And so it's, it's a real phenomenon. It is. It's a real phenomenon. It's uh, at least 10% more is, uh, is what ran on the credit card for me earlier this month. But uh, happy with the tree we got nonetheless. And we will be chatting about Christmas trees next week on Due South. Not only the rising costs, but uh, North Carolina is, as I suspect many of our listeners, perhaps some of y'all know, uh, is the second leading Christmas tree producer in the country. So we're going to uh, talk with uh, some various folks next week here on Due South. I'll just mention the Christmas tree in the White House is from North Carolina. And we spoke uh, with one of the farmers uh, who, who, who grew that tree. So a neat story. Um, I believe that's next Thursday uh, on Due South. All right, let's get back to candidate filing with Ruben and Will and Michelle. It's an open invitation if you, if you dare jump in on any of this candidate filing nonsense. But I want to pick up with that lieutenant uh, governor nomination uh, the, the crowded lieutenant governor field on the Republican side will, because one name that strikes me particularly of note, and there are several of note, we can build on this, but one is Sam Page. So remind the listeners, if you would, who Sam Page is and why it's interesting that he's running for lieutenant governor. So Sam Page is the uh, sheriff of Rockingham County, just north of Greensboro. And th- there was a lot of will he or won't he uh, this week uh, with, is he going to primary state Senate leader Phil Berger? Uh, you know, people who followed the whole uh, casino issue at the legislature earlier this year. Well, you know, are we going to legalize gambling in casinos? Um, we'll remember, you know, obviously Berger was pushing that and there was going to potentially be a casino built in Rockingham County. And that led to some pretty serious pushback in the local community um, led by one Sam Page. So Sam Page could have challenged Senate leader most powerful man in North Carolina politics, Phil Berger, in a Republican primary for the, the Senate district that Berger has represented for two decades. But he chose not to. He chose to run for state office. I, I don't suspect you've 
spoken with Page here in the last week, but do you have a sense as to why he's like Sam Page is not a statewide official. He's a local sheriff, but he's now running for statewide office. How come? Well, you know, I think in a in a crowded primary like this, you know, it, it's really easy to rise to the top. Uh, you know, if you're competing against seven or eight other people, you don't need 50 percent of the vote to win. You know, you can win that primary with, you know, or at least get to a runoff with right. a pretty small percentage of the vote. So, you know, might as well throw your hat in the ring, see what happens. Um, and. You know, th- there had been some rumors that, uh, you know, outside groups were offering up, you know, pretty large sums of money to anyone who wanted to challenge Berger, uh, you know, trying to kind of push this more, you know, a, a social conservative challenger against him. Um, but, you know, in the end, I mean, Phil Berger is a very powerful person, very influential. And, you know, the what's the quote from The Wire? You know, if you come at the king, you best not miss. If you come at the king, you best not miss. Thank you for bringing The Wire into my Friday morning. Uh, I'm doing better already. So there's a 40% threshold to avoid a runoff. Uh, and the conventional wisdom is like, ah, you throw 12 candidates in there, there's obviously going to be a runoff. But I'd like to point out, or is it 30% now? It's 30% um, yeah, Thank now. you. It's 30% now. Uh, but just uh, a few years ago, there was an unknown candidate from Greensboro who uh, was seeking the Republican nomination for lieutenant governor. And uh, he got over that 30 percent threshold. His name is Mark Robinson, and he has had, um, you know, a pretty domineering place within the bully pulpit of North Carolina politics here the last few years. I'll also point one thing before moving on from Sam Page. If if Sam Page were to get the nomination and eventually become lieutenant governor, he would preside over the state Senate of which Berger's the leader in. So that would be a really interesting dynamic way down the road uh, if it happens. All right. Uh, I'm going to bounce around a little bit here. I want to touch on one other congressional race because I, I do think it's interesting and it's, it, it's quite messy. Um, the sixth congressional district race is now effectively open. This is a Guilford County anchored district, and it's been redrawn multiple times in the last seven or eight years. It's now set to favor a Republican, which means, friendly reminder, the district is ultimately going to be decided uh, during the early March, March 5th primary, well before the general election. Republicans in this primary include Mark Walker, Bo Hines, Addison McDowell, Christian Castelli. uh, And there's also um, a Trump factor here in the 6th Congressional District. Ruben, you want to take this one? What's going on in the 6th Congressional District? And the the president, former President Donald Trump, has already weighed in here. Who Who is Donald Trump backing and why? This one is wild. Yeah. Former President Donald Trump endorsed Addison McDowell this week, who I don't think is a household name. I think that's fair to say. Fair. He is a lobbyist. He worked for uh, now Senator Budd. He worked for Congressman Richard Hudson. But uh, look, the people who have a little bit more name recognition, definitely Mark Walker, the former Congressman, Bo Hines, who was the Republican nominee against Wiley Nickel and lost that race. He had been actively hoping for an endorsement from Trump and did not get it. Uh, And Christian Caselli, who was the Republican nominee in that district in 2022. You've also got Jay Wagner, who's the outgoing High Point mayor, and um, and, and Marianne, um, another another candidate as well. So uh, this one is a lot of dynamics at play. And, And the big question, I think, is what is Trump's influence? It is very prevalent in the Republican primaries. Uh, and a lot of these candidates really seek uh, his endorsement. Look, just go back to 2022. Right. A lot of people did not think Ted Budd was going to be the Republican nominee until Trump came in and endorsed him. Mark Walker was hoping for that endorsement. Right. And so uh, Trump has a really big influence on these primaries. And the good thing for these Republicans is if they can get through the primary, well, it's pretty good chance they're going to win the general right. election. Right. I hate to say it's a done deal, but it's it's almost a, a done deal. And as for that Bud 
uh, backing from the former president, that didn't come late. That didn't come expectedly. That came uh, as a surprise endorsement, if I remember correctly, on a stage, maybe in eastern North Carolina. And it propelled Bud uh, from, I mean, he was a congressman at that point, but it, it shot him right up the, 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 the polls and really launched his likelihood of becoming a U.S. senator, which he now is. Will Dorn, remind us when there's an open congressional seat and there are all these candidates and you've got a TV market like Greensboro, uh, what can we expect lots of? Oh, money. <laughs> And, you know, it's going to it's going to be really interesting, um, you know, because, you know, in a Republican primary, you know, candidates obviously want to, you know, kind of associate themselves with Trump, who's still incredibly popular within the GOP. Um, You know, Mark Walker will obviously be able to point to his experience, you know, multiple terms in Congress. Uh, He was the head of the uh, Republican Study Commission, which is one of the biggest GOP caucuses in dc i mean you know this is someone who you know wasn't just you know necessarily a backbencher you know he had some actual leadership roles up in dc um but you know is going to you know be fighting to define himself as the the true conservative yeah um and then you know against you know a a crowd who doesn't really have that same experience but you know bo hines was endorsed by trump in 2022 and obviously you know kind of uh left trump with some egg on his face when he he lost that race um has since, you know, now moved to run for this other district. And then, you know, Addison McDowell kind of comes out of nowhere, right. you know, not really a, a name. Uh, you said not a household name, not really even a name that not a lot even of insiders name political know. reporters know. Well, at least down here, I think, Ruben, you know that name because Addison has uh, had a had a role in, in D.C. politics, m- maybe a little yes, bit. I, did, I didn't know the name. I okay. didn't know the name, to All be right. honest. I, I, and I appreciate the honesty. Uh, I'm going to tick through a couple of other filing things because there are some unrelated filing stories I want to get to. But just give me a little finger. Give me some eyes if you want to jump in on any of these. Uh, U.S. Senator Tom Tillis endorsed Bill Graham, a Republican candidate uh, for uh, governor this week. Tillis is not backing Mark Robinson, at least at this point. We'll see if Robinson emerges from the primary, whether or not Tillis does uh, any sort of shift. At the General Assembly level, Trisha Cotham, who, of course, gained lots of uh, attention here in uh, 2023 for her party switch, has two Democratic challengers, uh, at least, and that could uh, change by noontime today. That's a race that's going to get a lot of attention as well as money. Jason Sane, a powerful Republican in the State House from Lincoln County, ultimately decided this week that he will not seek a congressional seat, that being Patrick McHenry's seat. Sane is a very well-known uh, operator and one of the uh, higher ranking uh, House Republicans, but he is is not running for that. I would note there's time for Jason Sane to run for Congress later on if he would like to. There's a uh, he's a relatively young politician. Will. Yeah, but you know that that did surprise me a little um, me too. because Sane and McHenry are close friends. I mean, McHenry was a groomsman in Sane's wedding. You know, they've been buddies since college. Um, I kind of suspect that, you know, if McHenry, you know, was planning on stepping down and kind of anointing a successor, it might be someone like Jason Sane, who lives in that district, who, you know, has risen to a pretty powerful position at the yep. General Assembly. But, um, you know, he, he decided he wants to stay on at the at the state house um, where he does have a lot of power. I think that's probably part of it. You know, like, OK, you're going to go and be, you know, the 435th member of Congress versus your head budget writer, you know, in one of the biggest states in the country. And, and to be fair, to build on that point, we don't know which party will hold control of the U.S. House come 2025. We know with almost certain certainty Republicans will hold the North Carolina House and they very, very well likely will have a supermajority as well. Ruben? Yeah, and you had Pat Harrigan, who was the Republican nominee against Jeff Jackson and lost that race. 
basically come out with a video right away when McHenry announced that he was not going to run for re-election. So they knew something was was building here. I talked to Doug High yesterday, who's a well-known Republican um, operative, I guess you could say. Strategist but mind. Doug, Doug High is fun to talk to. Yeah. He's, he's great. And uh, he's up here in D.C. And uh, he said people had approached him about running for that district because uh, he that's his, his home district. And he said, no, thanks. But, um, yeah, I think this is this is going to be an interesting race to watch. Uh, I was also surprised about that and um, decision not to run. As quick, well. quick follow up. Sorry to go in the weeds. Doug High was approached about running for Congress. He said that uh, some people uh, reached out to him and uh, he even sent out a tweet and said, Thanks, but no thanks. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble or not. Doug High is just, he's too human to be in Congress. He's, he's, he has too much personality. He's too honest to, uh, to, to and I, I mean that in, in the utmost uh, lovingly respectful way. Uh, two more stories I want to try to get through in our final few minutes here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South with Ruben Jones, Will Dorn, and Michelle Crouch. First one is NC2A, big business of college sports. Let's address this for a moment. Earlier this week, a federal judge in West Virginia sided with a group of attorneys general who sued over the NCAA transfer rule. This is a temporary win for athletes who have additional flexibility to transfer within schools until December 27th. Why is Attorney General Josh Stein, reminder, a Democrat, among those who sued the NCAA over this, Will? Um, well, it really goes back to the, the Tez Walker situation at UNC, a, a wide receiver, uh, really a star wide receiver who had transferred in, um, should have, under you know the old rules, been able to play, but then they kind of changed the rules after he transferred, decided that you know the new rules were going to apply to him anyways, and so Stein stepped in, you know, he's a UNC guy. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, the governor, Roy Cooper, is a big UNC fan as well. Um, They stepped in to kind of, you know, advocate on his behalf. And then that sort of snowballed into this bigger thing. You know, I I actually listened to part of this court hearing uh, earlier this week. They had several athletes come and testify in front of the judge and, you know, kind of talk about, you know, just, you know, struggles during COVID, you know, and how that kind of derailed their athletic careers, hoping to transfer to new schools and, you know, get a fresh start. Um, and, it, you know, convince the judge. I guess just one more story here, uh, and that's Bucky's. I am from the Northeast. I don't know what Bucky's is. This came up in a production meeting this week, and someone's like, oh, yeah, you know Bucky's. And I was like, I have no idea uh, what we are talking about. Uh, so we're going to uh, spend just a minute or two here, uh, final moment of the show, uh, about this mega convenience store that wants to come to Mebane in Alamance County. Developers want to bring the convenience store that'll have 120 gas pumps, 60 parking parking spaces, and will employ 200 people. Michelle Crouch, 120 gas pumps? What is this necessary? Just talked. I I am ignorant. Is Bucky's? This is like a thing. What is Bucky's? I visited my friend in Texas last year, and one of the stops where she had to take me was to Bucky's. This is not a gas station. Don't think gas station. Think experience. Think an entire wall of jerky in many different flavors, more flavors of ices than you can ever imagine. And their most famous product, their beaver nuggets, which are like a sweet corn puff kind of snack. I'm making a face. I'm not convinced. Is this like wall drug in South Dakota? Uh, Will, Ruben, uh, drop some more knowledge on me. I right. don't know anything about Bucky's. The beaver nuggets are pretty good. Um, they also serve a bunch of brisket. Uh, they're, okay. You know, it's a Texas place, of course. They got some brisket. Sure. Um, there's one in South Carolina. You just hit 95, drive south a little while. I think it's pretty close to the border, if I'm not mistaken. I've, I've been there before. It's insane. I mean, there are 
thousands and thousands of people there. No, um, no, 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 no. Thousands of people? <laughs> it's, it Seriously? Felt, it certainly felt like it. At least a thousand. Um, and... You know, I mean, and people have probably seen, you know, photos of some of their like hiring boards that go viral online. Everyone's while, you know, like I think the car wash manager position pays like one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year to run their car wash. You know, it's it's, you know, big money uh, coming into this gas station. Ruben, we don't have much time left, but the look of perplex on your face looks like the look of perplexion on my face. What do you have for us on Bucky's? Look, Bucky's is super popular I, among everyone down south. All, all I'm going to say is all I care about in a, in a gas station is a clean bathroom. That's all I want uh, and be able to buy a Diet Coke or whatever. Uh, but here's the poll question for you, Jeff. Is it, is, it, is it Bucky's? Is it Sheets? Is it Wawa or QT? I think those are the kind of the four most popular gas stations. I could be wrong on that, but there's some very... Staunch views on this. This feels like a trap. This feels like, uh, you know, splitting between (laughs) vinegar or tomato-based barbecue. We're going to, I think, unfortunately, have to pull you all offline and save save the results uh, for another time and certify those results because I need to say goodbye. Michelle Crouch, who writes for North Carolina Health News, among other publications, Will Doran, state government reporter uh, at WRAL, and Ruben Jones, Spectrum News, Washington reporter covering North Carolina. Thanks, y'all, for joining us today on The Roundup. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. My name is Jeff Tabiri for Leonita Inge, Denarius Thomas, Aaron Kiever, Stacia Brown, Rachel McCarthy, and Cole Del Charco. Another week of Do South in the Books. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again on Monday at 10 a.m. <laughs>